HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program was brought to you by Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea. For more information, visit itoen.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday at Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Not joined, as usual, with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. She is on her way. Uh, for those of you who are devotees of the L Train, you can go to is the L Train F, but you have to spell out the curse word. But my son's here, and it's a family show.com. Notice that the L Train is, in fact, shafted right now. Nastasia will be notice, uh, joining us shortly. Additionally, sad to say, last week was Jack, Jackie Molecule Inslee's last week. <laughs> Here in the booth, and so we don't have Jack uh, this week either. David's uh, taking over his duties in the booth. Hi, David. He's not there. He's there. Hey, how's it going? Hey, all right. Got to keep on your toes, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit there and pester you. You never know when I'm gonna pester you. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, we have uh, we have two special guests: our scheduled special guest and our non-scheduled uh, schedule. What should we do first? We'll do my non-scheduled first. Oh, here's Nastasia coming in. We have uh, my son Dax Arnold. All right. So for any of your yay, for any of your eleven year old questions, you can call in your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. But the actual guest of honor today, hey Nastasia, the actual guest of honor today is Meathead Goldwyn, who uh, wrote a new book. Uh, it's it's an eponymous book. It's called Meathead, uh, and it was. Hold on, I have to move away for Nastasia to pass me. 
it was uh, the last time I checked, like the number two cookbook on Amazon, which is like an amazing achievement. It is. I'm out of my mind with happiness. <laughs> it's, it's great. And so, uh, and the uh, I always forget, even though like I actually have one too. What's the thing that they after the colon on a title? What do they call that? Semicolon. No, no. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like the the spiel after. Oh, you know, I, the subtitle. Okay, subtitle. The subtitle of the of the book is the science of great barbecue and grilling. Separate, of course, subjects. Yeah. Separate that subjects. was supposed to be the title originally, but the marketing guys said, well, let's name it after you, Meathead. And then we had this really beautiful picture of a rib to go on the cover, and they said, no, let's put your ugly face on the cover. So, Well, you, you owe them a bottle of champagne. Yeah, because it's done well. You know, you know, that's the thing. It's like uh, you got two things in a book, I've noticed. You got the actual content needs to be really good, and... Two people need to want to buy it and pick it up at the first. After a while, you get word of mouth, and then you, you could ha- this could come in a brown paper wrapper after a while. But uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, my editor uh, Maria Guarnaschelli also edited uh, Jim Leahy, the bread baker's book. Yeah, yeah. and she uh, she wrote uh, as the subtitle on his first book that he came out with. No, like for the bread, no need, and she added afterwards, no work, no work. Book sold more than any other bread book. Like, of course, no, of course. That's why Maria's a genius. Yes, stuff like this. So, call in all of your grilling-related questions and/or barbecue-related questions. Now we're talking. This can be. I'm gonna. I, I, I read uh, read the book. I'm gonna. Uh, we're gonna pester each other on some of the myths and whatnot. Is uh, Professor Blonder gonna call in or no? Do, do we have him or no? Well, yeah, I'd like I'd like to give him. I've, I've respected his work for a long time. I think his uh, what his blog is called what original ideas, uh, genuine ideas. genuine ideas. Great blog. Like uh, he did the first uh, work I saw on um, salt penetration, where he actually mm-hmm. used a uh, like a chemical reaction to show the actual salt penetration. Because mm-hmm. you know the problem with I had tried for a long time. Um, at dye work, which you have in, in, in the book, and you, and you note that you did with him. Uh, the interesting thing about dye, obviously, is dye is a much larger molecule than salt. So right. if you're trying to check salt penetration, you need to actually reveal the salt in it. His work is just great, I think. He's yeah. really brilliant. I, he stumbled into my website and asked me some questions, and I started asking him questions, and we just struck off a relationship, and he has taught me so much. His name is on the cover under mine. It's my book that uh, I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, he's tremendous. So why don't we, before we get into it, right, so why don't you, your website... AmazingRibs.com. AmazingRibs, and you can, and there's a there's a club, right? There's a, the... The, the the website has like a thousand free pages, but there is a pitmaster club, which is a paper member part of the site, which is a community, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And the book has ninety days free membership in the pitmaster club. All right, so here's what you get when you get uh, when you when you get the book. You get uh, a very interesting and good uh, you know representation of uh, the various science and practical aspects, frankly of First, um, what's going on uh, with it, – it's br- basically the beginning is broken into three parts, right? The first one is a heat fundamentally mm-hmm. uh, and uh, producing it. The second is uh, meat and kind of how that works. And the third is equipment. And then it goes into recipe. So it's pretty accurate. Yeah. So you get you – get, and the interesting thing about this is that the combo of you and Professor uh, Blonder, you're adding – uh, like a super kind of interesting scientific take, not like boring science, but like practical, like with experiments, by the way, uh, added to kind of also years of experience and observation, which is kind of an 
unbeatable combo in a book like this. They, so. they give you the insight that will help you think through cooking different foods, different thicknesses, different styles, and so you can improvise. You can make it your own. Okay, so now we're going to go through some of the some of the stuff. So one of the one of the things in the book is that there's a, a series of. Uh, Sidebars that are like myth busted. It's one of the things. Myth busted, not myth busters, just myth uh, busted. Let me get the copy over here. How much does this book cost on Amazon retail? Uh, well, it lists for thirty-five, and Amazon's discounting it to around twenty-one. I yeah, think. bargain. You know what the good news is? This your first book? Yeah. Well, first barbecue book. Yeah, I did a bunch of books on beverage. On be- yeah, because you know your royalties are based on the on the retail, not on the on what they yes, sell it for. Yes. Yeah. So, so you know. Yeah. Like the best is to have a book that costs a hundred bucks and sells for ten. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, no. nice. Well, especially not that you're you know, number two book selling on Amazon. It's awesome. So, uh, a couple of things that I think are interesting uh, that I've never run the tests on. You want to talk about briquette versus lump on charcoal? Oh boy, you picked a good one to start with. That's a. Uh, I am. I, I. You know, there's this cult about using lump charcoal, which looks like real wood, because it's made from burning chunks of wood in a low atmosphere low oxygen atmosphere so that it carbonizes and becomes char or pure carbon which burns really efficiently in a grill um, and a lot of people think it's more natural and we're in an area where natural food and organic food really appeals to the consumer so it appeals to that audience strongly but when you do that you end up with chunks of wood of different size, different thickness. They burn unevenly. And if they're not charred all the way through, they can smoke excessively. And you don't know what the wood is that's smoking. All kinds of woods are mixed up in there. And it's quite common to find lumber in a bag of lump charcoal. I have. Yeah, and I've found plastic and metal and other things in there. I don't know why foreign objects get in there so often. But I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I want to control smoke. I want charcoal for heat and heat only. And if you use briquettes, which are made from sawdust, the clump together with some binders. And some people object to the use of the binders. But they're pretty natural products, whatever that means. I mean, arsenic is natural. Yeah. Um, uh, they use cornstarch as a binder. But you have a uniform size, a uniform weight, a uniform quantum of heat per briquette. Um, A Weber uh, chimney contains 80 of those briquettes. So you have exact heat and temperature control with the briquettes. And everything that I'm about, everything I'm curious about, everything we want to do on the grill is control. Control heat, control fire, control smoke. I have more control with briquettes, and I recommend people use them. It's constant all year round. You have uh, one variable fewer to deal with. I, I tell you what, for years I've just kind of out of habit gotten the uh, lump, and I was convinced. I don't even need to run my own test. I was convinced by reading it I'm going to go briquette. Now, just so everyone everyone who listens to this show already knows, you do not mean the one that's impregnated with, with, with garbage. No, no, yeah. And they actually do. They use like a mineral spirits. The, the, the self-starting briquettes have mineral spirits or a petroleum product in the 
briquette. Now, they do give an off smell and flavor. You can smell it a block away. You start charcoal. The best way is with a chimney. And it looks like a big coffee can, and it's got a false bottom, and you put newspaper under there or a wad of paraffin under there. And it takes about 15 minutes, and you wait for the charcoal to be completely ashed over. When it's completely ashed over, it's burning really hot and emitting very little smoke. And I know people think charcoal is for smoke, but wood is for smoke. Charcoal is for flavor. Yeah. What do you think about this? Because one of the things, you know, when you, especially when you're exposed to... uh, like in the culinary world, in the cooking school world in particular, a lot of Japanese chefs come over and they make a big, big deal. And it's a different purpose. So they're dealing with... Binchotan. Uh, yeah, they're dealing with their very high-grade, extraordinarily expensive binchotan. And for them, they're, yeah, they're, they're doing a, a much different technique. First of all, they're burning like a couple of sticks at a time. They need a cl- super clear fire, typically indoors. No one's dumping binchotan into a Weber. I mean, if they are, they're freaking banana rams. Well, they're but. really they're really expensive too. But binchotan is made by almost a ritualistic process, and uh, the the they're almost uniform in thickness. And if you clink them together, they sound like wind chimes. I mean, but they're carbonized perfectly. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. Pure. Yeah. They give up very little smoke, a lot of heat. They solve a lot of the problems that I see in American lump charcoal. Yeah, but do you think they're like if they were the same price as briquettes, would you still go for briquettes? That's the question. In other oh, words, is it a load of, ma- of malarkey or not? I, you know, Benjaton, I th- if it was the same price as briquettes, I might. Um, because it doesn't have binders and other things in it. Right. And the binders do create more ash. That's the one disadvantage of briquettes. You get more ash out of them. And you- I'm very... It's, it, I, I'm, I can count on zero hands the number of times that ash has been a problem during a single cook. It, it just makes it harder to work out afterwards. It's a problem for people with big green eggs. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't like green, green egg. Tell I'm me why a, I should use it. I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan either. Um, uh, I, the core concept that people need to learn when they're grilling outdoors is to set the grill up in two zones, a hot side and a not hot side. And you've got infrared radiant heat directly below the food on the hot side and the indirect side or the not hot side is warmed by circulating convection air and you can move the food back and forth as you need to and you're controlling heat you're controlling the type of um, uh, uh, energy striking the meat and in a Kamado that's round, like the big green egg. Yeah, Kamado is a, is the generic name for what the big green egg is. For those of you that don't, know. it's a it, it's an old Japanese design, but it's a like an urn, and it's an egg shape, and the charcoal is confined in a small round area, so it's very hard to divide it in two heat zones. So it makes a great oven. I mean, good pizza oven. Although, no, you know, the thing, my problem with pizza, it's good for like one or two, but like at the temperatures that I normally cook my pizza, it was very difficult for me to reload it and keep it going. So mm-hmm. if you're making a couple pizzas for your family, fantastic. For a party that no. you're running for a couple of hours? No. No. I mean, it seems to me that the big green egg was only able to sustain an even heat for a long time at lower temperatures. Well, the other thing is, is the egg's been around for about 15 years or more, and it really hasn't changed its design significantly, whereas its competitors, there's a competitor that's built in Atlanta called Primo, and it's oval shaped. So with the oval shape, you can set up in two zones. Um, I like that better. Yeah. Um, so they need to do some innovation. And- yeah, just to get uh, on the table right now, I do almost the exact opposite style of cooking. Uh, like, so I come from a kind of low temperature sous vide background. Mm-hmm. So I do almost entirely 
all my stuff is already cooked before I go to the to a grill, and I'm using the grill mainly for finish. So mm-hmm. I'm a I'm high fast and multiple in and outs. Well, let and so me like tell I do like you. tandoors too, which is like in out in out in out in out because it acts more like a rotisserie with speed going in and out. But let me tell you about what I call redneck sous vide. Redneck sous vide is when you've got that grill divided in half, a hot side and a not-so-hot side. I shoot for about 200, 225 on the indirect heat side. It's warming just by convection air. And it's like sous vide. You start a big, thick steak on the indirect side and gently warm it, just like you would in a sous vide system. And once it gets up close to finished temperature, say you want medium-rare steak, 130 to 135, you'll take it up to about 120 on the indirect side. Then you lift the lid, move it over the hot side, right over that pounding infrared energy, and put it just on the underside and flip frequently. Flip, 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 so you don't get bars of flavor, um, grill marks. You get even all over brown, and you've got a great sear. And when it's on the indirect side, it can be picking up smoke flavor, which is an advantage it has over real sous vide. And I've done side-by-side tasting. They're, they're, I think they're different products anyway. Well, when, when I've, I've taken identical steaks and done one in no, sous vide. I mean, I mean, I think that the end result is just, I don't think they should be, con- I think they're just different. I think they're different. Well, they are. Um, when you do, as I did, side-by-side comparison, the sous vide product is a, a significantly moister and more tender. But the redneck sous vide, if you will, the reverse sear technique, gets more flavor from the grill and the smoke. Sure. I mean, the issue with, <laughs> there are a lot of interventions you can do with sous it's not about sous vide. Let's not get into sous vide. There are a lot of interventions you can do. So, for instance, like uh, I find most people, when they do sous vide, they only sear on one side or the other. You get much better flavor development when you sear both before and after. Mm, I've and seen And when that. you put certain things in the bag. A lot depends. A lot of times people will pre-salt with a sous vide. And if you pre-salt with a sous vide, the meat ends up tasting cured because the salt penetration is mm-hmm. very high. And you get a firming effect. A lot depends on the temperature, what temperature it is when you put it on the grill afterwards. After this, There's like so many variables. It's hard to like run. I just think that there. I think that what we can agree on is that the the best way to cook any piece of meat like that, especially, is a low average heat input with a very high uh, instantaneous uh, either continuously as a rotisserie works, where it's like intermittent but like yes, often, yes. Or, which I think is fantastic cooking technique, or by super high energy uh, at the at the end. I always think, as you do in the book, um, you agree with me. I think basically uh, wholeheartedly on this that. Uh, you know, if you're going to put a sear at the beginning, fine, but it needs to be at the end because otherwise the crust development's not there. Right, right. And the other thing is, is if you put pound energy into the surface of meat at the start, let's take a, a steak, for example. What happens is, you know, people don't realize it's the, the hot air doesn't cook all the meat. The hot air only cooks the outside of the meat. Once the outside of the meat starts building and storing energy like a capacitor, it's the outside of the meat that cooks the inside of the meat. So if you start by searing at the beginning on a grill, you're going to pound energy into the surface. You're going to get a great dark surface. And then just below the surface, you're going to get a layer of brown. Then you're going to get a layer of tan. Then you're going to get a layer of pink. And then you're finally in the center going to get a half inch or so of perfect medium rare. Whereas if you start slow in either a sous vide machine or reverse sear, you can get the color really even top to bottom. Color is also related to temperature, and you get perfectly cooked. So the, most of us 
backyard weekend warriors. We cook way too hot. You're on it. Cook slow, cook low, cook gentle. Right. You know what's interesting about crust development as well? This goes back to your flipping thing. Let's just say this also. I hate it for different reasons. Uh, you know, we call it quadriage marks where they actually do the two. Gr- I detest it. I've always detested it. I just think it's, I don't think it even looks good. I think it looks, I think it looks horrible. We're, we're Pavlovian trained to salivate when we see grill marks. When I see grill marks, I don't salivate. I see unfulfilled potential. I see a child that had great smarts and never got to college. (laughs) I see tan surface. I want to see brown surface. I want to see it dark all over. And when you flip, flip, flip every minute or two, you can get that all over even tan. Another interesting thing. Or all over even brown. I'm sorry. Hey, we've got Greg on the line. Oh, hey, Professor Blonder. uh, Thanks for uh, calling in. Hey, guys. It's been fascinating listening to this uh, give and take on sous vide versus redneck. Oh, yeah. Well, we're we're going to get into it in a a minute. Just one more. Well, an interesting thing about, uh, I don't know whether you've done any experiments on, so feel free to chime in at any time. But uh, I I work a lot with extreme high intensity, just like to kind of push the searing to the fastest possible. And what I've noticed is, frankly, that there's a certain minimum time for crust development and that you cannot develop a crust uh, faster than a certain rate because the That's quality absolutely not correct. It takes about a minute on your average steak to get a crust. So if flipping faster than that reduces the quality of the bark, and uh, flipping too slow, you're going to get gray. So I, I like to flip about a minute, minute and a half. And when I cook sous vide, I actually like to um, pat, even slightly squeeze both sides into a paper towel. So I can pull a little bit of that moisture out and make sure I get a, a quick sear rather than steaming. Right, to get I don't the know if you do that. Yeah, you know, no, I always. I like so like when you when a lot of time I'm working and I'm I'm pulling out of a bag and I like to pull out of the bag a little bit in advance. I throw them on towels typically, uh, and I think you say you're against it somewhere. Pam for cooking, but I I use Pam a lot when I'm grilling to get a quick surface sheen of oil on top of something when I'm going into the tandoor. No, I don't think I've mentioned Pam or any kind of oiling. In fact, I will often oil the meat slightly before the sear phase, Um, but uh, I I don't know that makes a huge difference. Greg, you've talked to me about that. What what are your thoughts about oil? The only problem with Pam is if you get it hot, it does a good job, but if there's Pam on the sides of the meat, it gets kind of a little bit of a waxy mouthfeel, which I don't like. Like a that's the only reason. Otherwise, if, you, if you can actually get it hot, it's fine. But if, it, if it's between hot and cool, it gets a little waxy. Yeah, because I find like when I'm going, uh, I know you're anti-skewer, but t- tandoors, it's like sometimes it's the only thing you can do. Like when I'm going in and out of a tandoor, like spraying is the only way. And if you're doing a lot of it, even with steaks, it's the only way I can guarantee I'm going to get uh, an even coat of oil on it really I'm a big fan of spraying. I usually don't spray Pam. I usually spray different cooking oil. But you, I'm you can buy, in favor of You can buy that. spray containers that you can fill with cooking oil. I've clogged and or melted like a bunch of them. I hear there's a trick <laughs> to getting them to not break on me, but like I haven't figured it out yet. So, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know the, you're talking about the Mistos? Yeah. I've gone through so many. Can, can, do you have- no, I've actually had similar problems. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one. Great. Yeah. You got a solution to those? Yeah. Professor, you got anything to not have those things break on me? Yeah, well, I'll t- I, I mean, I hate to say this, but I actually use an all-metal airbrush. Oh, nice. Like pre pressurized And that's a great job, and, it does, and I completely agree with you. Most of those have plastic parts, and if you get them too close to the grill... They're toast. That is so uh, you, But the, Greg. the airbrushes are all metal, at least if you buy the right ones, and, and they're great. All right, so let's let's get right to some, unless we have caller calling with question, let's get right to some uh, myths. We, we do have a caller. Oh, hey, caller, caller, you're on the air. 
Hey, Dave. I just wanted to, um, I heard you talking about that blueberry drink you were working on a couple of weeks ago. Ooh, do you remember what it was? It was, what, uh, blueberry gin hustino um, kind of spark uh, uh, carbonated drink. Oh, mm. man. Yeah, I don't remember. Do you have a, what, what's the question, though, real quick? Because i got to uh, get the grilling, grilling questions. I'm just uh, curious if you're using, um, like, dried blueberries or fresh blueberries for the drink, and if it's just kind of like a typical, like, carbonated drink. If I made it a couple of weeks ago, I was testing with frozen blueberries because the real ones weren't uh, – I don't have real ones yet. Um, so I was testing with, with frozens. And, um, you know, when you're blending a fruit, it, I think the frozen stuff is fine, really, uh, especially if you go direct from frozen into the liquor. So, like, certain fruits, you'll get interesting enzymatic action when you freeze-thaw because you've ruptured a lot of the cells during the freezing process, and the flavor changes quite considerably. Apples would be the one that's very clearly like that. But um, blueberries, uh, you're not going to get much different. So I would, you could test with frozen. It's nicer to use fresh ones when they're in, um, when they're in season, but I can't recall the recipe. I've been using shad uh, berries recently because they're in right now. Blueberries will be in the soon too yeah you know what's in right now go outside for those of you right now go outside find the closest linden tree aka basswood linden blossoms are in now and you can nitro muddle or blend uh linden blossom drink i suggest linden blossoms uh two ounces uh plymouth half ounce lemon half ounce uh simple some salt you won't regret it Okay, perfect. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. All right, back to uh, myths on uh, on. So let's 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 tackle some of the oldest and strongest and ones that we're going to argue about here. All right, resting. So uh, oh for those of you that have the book, it's on uh, what is it? Page uh, seven here. Let me start, Greg. You can jump in. Uh, this is not settled science, and in fact, I've been talking to the people at Texas A&M about hiring a grad student to do some research on this. The general theory is is that when you take meat out of a hot fire, if you let it sit for 5, 10, 15 minutes and let it rest, that the juices will be redistributed and that they will flow more evenly throughout. Um, I'm not sure that they have run away from the fire and been distributed improperly, and I've never seen evidence that they have. Greg did some really interesting tests with this. Greg, why don't you tell them about what you've done and what you've learned? Well, I mean, first of of all, I mean, in most cases, let's say you're talking about a steak, unless you eat the whole thing in 30 or 40 seconds, it's going to rest on your plate. So the steak you eat at the beginning is going to be different than the steak you eat five minutes later versus uh, 15 minutes later. So almost all meat's eaten partly rested. Um, the the, the uh, juiciness difference is nearly zero. I've done tests where I've sliced steaks immediately, gathered up all the juices, waited 15 minutes, then sliced it up. There's no difference. The difference is where it ends up, whether it ends up inside the meat or it ends up in the plate, and then you kind of sop it up. Uh, while you're eating. So the total amount of juice is no difference, rested or not rested. Uh, I'm a big believer in not resting uh, for a co- And actually, even I like to slice my steak pretty early after it comes off the fire because I don't like the crust to sog out, and I worry about carryover when you're using a really hot fire. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan of taking the meat off, slicing it. I like that charred aroma and that slightly hard crust, which I, I mm-hmm. ruin if you wait too long. So I like to do it. But in terms of total juicy, there's no difference. And the important thing to remember is tenderness and juiciness are not the same thing. And so the liquid that's in there, which comes out, is just as good whether it's in the meat or it's out of the meat. So I'm not a big fan. There's one exception, and that is for things like uh, brisket. 
And there, there is a huge advantage in waiting an hour after you pull it off the fire, wrap it up, put it into a, oh. a faux cambrot, and let it sit there. It will absorb the juices. And that has to do with the microstructure of the brisket and the way it cooks. It actually acts like a bunch of soda straws, and it will pull the juices in. It'll continue to cook. And I do definitely believe you want to rest a, a big meat like a brisket. A steak, I'm on the opposite side. I, I never rest it. Greg, I've been um, differentiating the two steps um, by saying meats that you're cooking to medium rare or under. 150 degrees you don't need to rest you want to serve hot not only what you were saying but i think a big part of the juiciness uh, phenomenon is saliva and when you put a sizzling hot steak on my plate i start to salivate i get juicy now as far as the brisket i refer to that as holding now greg rather than resting you're holding it just so people will overcome because a brisket is cooked to 200 203 degrees big difference from 130 degree steak I think a lot of this also you're dealing with a, a problem of um, dealing with a problem of terminology. Mm. So you know the, the way that I look at it isn't that I've never believed in this redistribution garbage, what I call garbage. What do they mean redistribution? But what is true, and in fact, what uh, Professor, your experiments show in the sidebar, if you read carefully towards the end, is. Uh, meats tend to, as they're cooling back below about uh, 54, 52 Celsius, tend to uh, have a radical shift in their water holding capacities. And so what happens is you get reabsorption of juices that are next to meats as they cool down. And, and as your experiment said, you, you cut a 33-ounce roast and it bled – I think three ounces when it was cut hot and two ounces when it, or two ounces when it was cut hot and one, which is only one ounce, it is 50%, but it is only one ounce difference. 50%, now, but when you're dealing with a piece of meat, that is 70% water. Right, but, but, but then it reabsorbs it. So I think the key is, you, and as you said, Professor, on the thing, is that it stops up the juices. I've run multiple, when I say multiple, hundreds of uh, tests where you take two pieces of meat and you either force chill them through their zone of, uh, of, of like absorption. And this is something, by the way, that I thought was hogwash. This was uh, talked to me by a guy named Bruno Gousseau, who's one of the you know, kind of granddaddies of low-temperature sous vide cooking. And he always used to say you want to ramp your cooling down slowly. When it's in the bag, we're not talking about seared because he does cook, chill, and then retherm later. Yeah, I always thought cook was then you chill fast. No, 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 because, it, well, that's the thing. That's what I always said. Faster, better, right, from a from microbial standpoint. And he always said, no, you want to do a uh, ramped chilling. And the reason is, is that the meat will reabsorb more juices mm. if the ramp goes down slowly. I thought he was full of garbage and we just ran, we ran the test like hundreds of times because we used to teach it in our, in our low temp sous vide cooking class. And, and about 70% of the people, about 70% of the time, people will choose uh, the meat that has gone through a a ramped cooling. And so then because that effect was true, I always assumed that his argument for it was true, which is that you get uh, – I never actually – I don't think I've measured it, but you get more reabsorption of juices as it slows down, which is actually corroborated by the – the sidebar you guys did in the book saying that the meat reabsorbs the juices. I don't think the meat needs to be non-sliced for it to reabsorb the juices. It just needs to be in proximity with the juices. Well, not only That's that. absolutely correct. And, it's, it's, and it depends on the, um, the muscle group. Uh, some muscle groups are more like sponges, and other muscle groups, it, there's not much you can do about it, and it's not going to absorb a tremendous amount. Uh, by the way, I just want to get to that thing about uh, rapid cooling. Um, 
my, my belief, first of all, there's only so much you can do in terms of rapid cooling and ice baths and stuff. But I do believe that if you can get hot meat into a sous vide bag and seal it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sterilize itself if it's hot when you put it in. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and then you have a little bit of margin to play games with how quickly you cool it or not. So I'm, I'm not as worried about the microbial issue if it's in a nice sanitary bag, right. like a sous vide bag. It's super difficult to suck. Uh, I mean, you can't suck a good vacuum on hot, obviously. You know what no one's ever made? No one's ever made like a, a pressure bagger where literally, instead of sucking the air out of the bag, you increase the pressure around it. Well, actually, Greg just did some interesting re- experiments on that. We use I've, water. I've been doing experiments on pressure versus vacuum marinating yes. and whether that works. Oh, I've done a lot of experiments on pressure marinating in bottles. I mean, it clearly works at higher pressures. You don't agree? Uh, well, so it's quite, so how high, high pressure are you talking about? 60, 70 PSI? Uh, above 100, you're going to begin to see a difference. There's cer- it's certainly true that in a, um, uh, a vacuum marinator, the vacuum marinating, I believe, is absolutely bogus. It does absolutely nothing in terms of driving things in or all the stories about well, pores. Have you, spoken, have you spoken to the protein scientists on this? Because the, the professionals I've spoken to on it, I've never really played with it that much because I never cared to. I don't really care about it that much. But the, yeah. um, the, uh, what they say is that there is a win – and I don't believe it. I don't know that I believe this. This is like – you know how there's, um, there's built-up knowledge over time from professionals who do it? They believe that there is a window of uh, vacuum pressure that is good and that uh, a deeper vacuum than that is not advantageous and a shallow vacuum than that is not well, effective. Uh, so as soon as you begin to hear that you're, what you're hearing is a lot of f- scuffing of feet, um, trying to find some window where they can prove it works. Most of the studies I've seen in the food literature show that the vacuum marinating is ineffective, as in my own experiments, as is, I believe, the theory. Uh, very high pressures, of course, as you know, high pressure uh, pasteurization is extraordinarily uh, effectacious in terms of what it does to molecules. The in-between levels, the 100 PSIs, uh, can make a difference. Your average home pump is not going to get there. Right. Uh, and so most of the stuff that, and the most of the stuff that you purchase on the outside. So my belief is that the commercial ones that your average home users, it's ineffective. Just use a Ziploc bag. You're just as well off. Um, you can make a difference at the high levels. It only goes in so far, given the time. So I, I, I think it works best with thin cuts. Also, it's nothing like, that helps a big thick cut. Like crustaceans, with, shrimp can obviously pick up a lot more because well, of the structure of their muscles. Right. right. I mean, that's right. an open circulatory system, and you can get there in minutes and with shrimp. I mean, vacuum uh, grinding of shrimp is works. Yes. Yeah, but that's a, di- a completely different structure. Yeah, uh, and, when you add, and, and, and vegetables behave differently also. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fish behave differently. You know, ve- vegetable, you know, the interesting thing about it, because I do you know, a lot of work with uh, vacuum infusion for garnish work and cocktails and, and, and things like this you know, for years and years. All of the mar- none of the marination effect happens while you're sucking the vacuum. It's when the pressure comes back in and pushes the liquid into the evacuated pores. Mm-hmm. That's right, and there has to have been pores which were in fact empty. If the pores had liquids in it, nothing pulls out. Yeah, right. it's important to remember that meat does not have. Uh, it's not like Swiss cheese. There's not. There are no air pockets in there. It's a fully saturated uh, sponge, if you will. Right. Oh, and to go back to juiciness, I think this is also something that's good that you're hitting on. We're so preposterously obsessed with juiciness and the loss of juiciness. Things just have to be juicy enough for them to be. Well, let's dry let's, aging gets rid of juice. 
water. That's something that I've pointed out too in my argument on uh, on this business. We dry age, and it, it comes; it, it'll lose fifteen, twenty percent or so of its juiciness sometimes. Um, but look at you know, we hear don't poke a thermometer into the meat because it'll. It, Deflate like don't a use tongs. Don't. Yeah, use tongs, not a fork to flip. Let's an eight ounce filet mignon is six ounces of water. If you stick a thermometer in there, if you stick a fork in there, you might lose a teaspoon after numerous punctures. There's six ounces of water in there. You're not going to miss it. Plus, the bound well, water and, and is more important. The anyway. most important thing in my mind is, is mouthfeel. And I'm sure, Dave, you've done experiments mm. with putting in monosodium phosphate, things like that. There is this, uh, for me, there is this window where you don't want pure, mild water because it's a little watery on your tongue. Right. Uh, you want a little bit of fat. If you put too much water holding gels in, it feels a little bit slimy. But there is a window where it has this wonderful, unctuous, meaty uh, texture in your mouth due to the viscosity of the liquid. And that's, that's what you have to hit. Uh, otherwise, you end up with uh, you know industrial-flavored meats, which taste like they put gelatin on the inside. Now, we're getting deep down into some technical stuff, but, Greg, you used a word there that I want to define for the audience because it's an important word, myowater. You know, when we cut into a steak and these juices that we see come running out, people often call it blood. It's not blood. The blood has all been removed in the slaughtering process. Blood from a steer and a chicken and a hog is much like our blood. It's very dark red. It's almost black. It's thick, and when it comes out into oxygen, it starts to coagulate. Those thin pink juices are called myowater because they're mostly water, and they've gotten a little bit of a pink tinge from a protein called myoglobin. So I, I want to caution all you people who say, uh, let's collect the, uh, the blood and pour it over the meat. Every time you call it blood... Somewhere in Indiana, a bell rings and a teenage girl becomes a vegan. Wow, dang. Indiana, that's where they all yeah, are? Yeah, that's where they all are. Dax, are you, uh, you going to become a vegan? Do you, do you like steak? I like steak a lot. All right, there we go. Yeah, well, uh, how do you like your steak? Really red or... I like a medium rare. Medium? Oh, because I'm talking to him like he's a 12-year-old. He is. Yeah. You, you know the difference between medium rare. So... Oh well, I only I yeah I mean I only ever I I do exactly fifty five point uh, two degrees all the time. Well, I'm I'm, I'm a Fahrenheit guy, yeah. but uh, uh, it's hundred and what is that? It's hundred and well, medium rare is one thirty to one thirty five. It's in there. In it's in that range. And we should one thirty five is fifty seven. So that's a we should days. also point out something again for people who are not that deep into the things as the three of us seem to be. The single most thing that you can do as a home cook to improve your grilling and your barbecue, your smoking, or even your indoor cooking is go out and buy a $30 digital thermometer that will give you an accurate reading within five seconds. Medium rare steak is 130 to 135 Steak is too expensive to overcook. Stop bringing in the steak and saying, oh, it kind of got away from me there. And more importantly... Poultry needs to be cooked to 160, 165 to be safe. And we're not talking about holding it at 155 like you might in a sous vide. Yeah, any, anything you cook longer than a couple of hours, as long as it's at a cook temperature. Yeah. The, but, core, the core is at that temperature. But, for but we're, not, we're, we're talking about grilling where we're not sous vide. You want to take it up to 160 at least. Um, and uh, Consumer Reports did a research project a year ago in which they found out of 300 chicken breasts, 90% had pathogenic bacteria. Half 
of them had ant- um, antibiotic-resistant pathogens. Um, you you don't want to undercook poultry. You don't want to overcook steak. And a $30 digital thermometer, you want the top of the line, the Thermapen for $100. Go get it. Uh, it'll read in two seconds. But you can get a good one that will read in five seconds do for you, uh, 30 do you, bucks. Do you bother uh, decontaminating it before? I always wash it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right, because anything you poke into meat becomes a hypodermic, and it can push contaminants deep inside. Yeah, I mean, what I always tell people is, like, you know, there's two different things. When you're dealing with, we have a lot of, like, pretty hardcore people, listeners. So, you know, I make a big distinction between uh, what you're willing to do for your family and then what you're doing if you're serving, like, you know, you don't know the people or they're immunocompromised or whatever. There's, like, big mm-hmm. differences. Like, a lot of times if I'm going to do stuff that's not safe 100%, then I have to be willing to eat it raw and serve it to my family raw. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't do it. But also, just a note for all of you sous vide jockeys out there, uh, don't take your incredibly expensive hypodermic thermocouple anywhere near the grill. They have a uh, – the – the potting compound that they use inside of those hypodermic needles is sensitive to heat and will die if it overheats, and then your $80 probe is in the garbage. Well, so, you can still uh, stick it in the meat, though. You're not. Yeah, but I've lost more than five. Like, trying to, when I'm doing classes and I'm trying to show temperature rise in a steak while I'm flipping it, so if they actually leave it in a grill or, God forbid, use it as a frying thermometer, they're well, gone. Hey, we got a caller with a thermometer. A lot of them have question. Teflon uh, wire coating, and that only goes up to about 450. Yeah. I actually, I actually have a ceramic bead thermometer, uh, thermocouple, yeah. so I can get it up to 750. I, I did want to get your decontaminated, um, and Meathead does this. I do this. I'm sure you do it too. Is I, I'll, I'll cook medium rare hamburgers, but I, I grind my own meat, and I in fact put them in boiling water for 20 seconds before I grind it, and and that cuts down all the surface bacteria and in general most of the inter- the interior of meat is pretty close to sterile so you can get away with that unless someone stabbed it yeah i don't uh, worry yeah. about it uh, again chicken, i don't it should be is has been just badly treated uh in most cases but you can do the same trick with chicken if you get it from a local uh well for contaminate we, we have a thermometer question on the air but before but just really quickly are you a believer in uh, less bacterial contamination in air chilled birds yes Okay. Uh, wait, we have a caller that wants to ask you guys a question, but I don't want to miss him. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Um, I uh, picked up a big green egg over the weekend, and um, I'm really excited to use it. And uh, the, the question I had actually relates to digital thermometers, so I thought it would be uh, a good thing to, to dovetail. Um, I wanted to pick up something that I could use to um, get the, the temperature of not just the ambient uh, heat in the uh, Kamado grill, um, but also the, you know, whatever protein I'm cooking. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that uh, there might be some device out there that would give me three thermocouple um, uh, sensors Yes. Uh, so that I could get ambient heat, um, like chicken breast and chicken thigh at the same time. Yes. And if there's more, you know, great. I can throw on different stuff at the same time. Um, but obviously, as uh, you just pointed out, uh, the heat is an issue when you know you've got it up above 500. You can't put silicone in there. So I'm no, wondering but, but, if there's, no, there's anything that's, that's wireless and can withstand the heat. So I don't have a to wireless. Watch over yeah, the wireless puts another curve on it. Um, if you'll go to amazingribs.com, we have a thermometer buying guide. I have an electrical engineer, and we buy the thermometers. Don't take samples. We put them through equipment that tests their accuracy, their speed of response. Check them against the manufacturer's specs. But there are probes that you can buy that are 
plug-in to a meter. So you can buy 20 probes, put one on a different part of the uh, grill grate, put two in the meat, uh, hang one through the ducts, wherever you want to put them, and then all you need is a single meter with a connector on it. Now, some of the meters have one connector, multiple connectors, but you can move the meter from probe to probe and measure as many different measurements as you want. If you want something off the shelf that's remote read, um, I'm not happy at all with any of the Bluetooth devices we've tested. Bluetooth is a pain in the butt. It's really hard to pair sometimes. There are some nice units. Maybe they'll solve the connectivity issues. But my favorite is made by a company called Maverick, and they have several models. The one I like the best is not the newest model. It's called the Maverick ET732, and it's radio frequency, not Bluetooth. And uh, I can walk several blocks away from, well, not that far, but a block away from the house and still get a good reading on it. It's got two probes, so you can use both in the meat or one in the meat or in the other on the grill surface. But that's another point that we should point out. We talk about measuring meat temperature. You don't want to use the thermometer that comes on a grill. It's usually mounted in the dome, which is handy if you're going to eat the dome. But if you're going to eat the meat, you need a probe down on the surface where the meat is. So you need to get a digital thermometer with a probe. This Maverick ET732 costs about 50 bucks. If you want to go... Let me, let me say two other things about thermocouples. Most of the ones you purchase, the, uh, the metal stainless steel probe is uh, grounded to one of the leads. If you put more than two of them into the same piece of meat, you can get what's called a ground loop and get very unreliable measurements. You need special thermocouples if you want to put more than one into a piece of meat going to the same meter. So look, if you notice weird numbers... It's often because of that. That's a good point. Uh, I forgot about and that. And I actually, and I've, I've purchased what are, which, what are called floating uh, sheath uh, thermocouples so that you don't have that problem. But unfortunately, <laughs> most manufacturers don't do it. Um, That's an interesting. I didn't even think about that. Excuse me? I said I hadn't even thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah, we, we, yeah and it Greg becomes a problem it. when you have meat which has been salted because then it's a good electrical conductor. Sure. And you can actually get an electrical ground loop between one piece of meat down into the stainless steel grill over to the other piece of meat into the thermocouple. You can actually watch that happen. So I, I use the right kind of thermocouple. Now, for, for the, this is yeah. not a common occurrence, though. I mean, this is... Um, it, you'd be surprised. Um, I've tested it in a bunch of commercial ones. Uh, Do you think but, that the average other thermometer is, would suffer from that problem? It's, it's about the probe, not about the thermometer. Yeah, it's the probe. Uh, the other the other thing you might want to consider doing, which is a trick I use, is I get um, these uh, cotton braided uh, laces, like you might put in your shoes, thick ones. Uh, I soak them with water. I put them over the Teflon part of the thermocouple probe, and then I wrap it with aluminum foil. And that will allow you to use uh, a thermocouple uh, on top of a really hot grill and not destroy it immediately. Yeah, I use uh, mainly the fiberglass and silica ones, but they fray after a while. They fray after a while. The water helps uh, keep the temperature low. Uh, you still have a weak point where the epoxy goes from the wire into the thermocouple, but if you don't do that, you might get one, one or two grills out of them if you're not careful. Now, caller, if you really want to go geeky, I don't know why you would for this, but if you really want to go geeky and you have some money, the cheapest, like, super multi one that I know of, an outfit out of, I think, Massachusetts, maybe Maine, called Measurement Computing, sells a, an eight-channel DAC that has uh, thermocouple inputs that are pre-calibrated. And years ago when I bought, and they sell you, they give you a program, and it's, uh, you could do 
at the time it was 200 bucks with eight channels of input and then you just buy yourself a spool of wire and make make some thermocouples <laughs> and you go to town i used to use it to measure like eight things at once and I'm not telling you to steal a copy of LabVIEW online, but they have a thing called uh, – I forget what their one that – their one that they come with works fine too. But it's super nerdy. There's, there's like – I can think of like five or six people that would care to even have eight readings at once, but – well, I, I'm willing to be as geeky as it takes to be as lazy as I want to be. So uh, I don't think remote. it's going to help you in that grill, though. Like, you know what I'm saying? Have you guys well, ever that, used that, Fleur? That, that grill holds uh, temperature really well. I mean, it's very efficient. And, in fact, it's almost too efficient. It's very hard to get uh, what, we want, what we call blue smoke out of a uh, big green egg, which is the best tasting smoke. It's very efficient. Uh, so once you get the hang of it, do some dry runs. Fire it up and don't put food in there and waste food. Fire it up and uh, cook without food and get your measurements down so that you can control temp. Yeah, but the only, the only reason... Mention burping. What? Oh, yeah, burping. Yeah, tell them, Greg. Well, well one of the problems with the, the green eggs is, is they are so efficient, they're running a little oxygen-starved. And sometimes when you open it up to see what's going on, the oxygen rushes in, the coals catch fire, and you get... Uh, a kind of a hair-removing burst of flames that come out of the thing. So the right thing to do is you open it a little crack, you let the air in, let it burst, burp, and then you open the lid all the way. Uh, and back on, like, multiple readings, it's very rare that you need that many readings. The only time I can think of that you would need it is if you were building a brand-new bread oven and you were embedding thermocouples into the masonry at various depths so you could tell what's going to happen. In an egg, you could just move the thermocouples around and see what the temperature distribution is like. Yeah, and we're go- we've gone way geeky here. I mean, like That's on what a- my, crew- my crew is like that, though. Is That's it really? A- yeah, yeah. On, a, on, a, on a gas grill, for example, you go out and you buy a loaf of white bread. And you spread the bread slices all over the surface of the grill, and you turn on the grill, close the lid, and then you lift it in a few minutes and look in and see which bread pieces are burning black and which are not cooked. And now you know where your hot spots are. Have you guys ever, uh, when you're uh, cooking, used these new cheap uh, fluorothermal imaging cameras, found a good use for them? I have. Yeah. 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 I, I, I've used those. I I've bought done a one bunch too. of experiments with microwave cooking, which are kind of cool on my website, which use that... Uh, uh, look at the fact that if you put, a, a, say, a, a Slim Jim in a microwave, it acts like an antenna and actually gets hot in, in sections with nodes in between. Um, That's so awesome. Oh, that is I, cool. That, if you had know, taught me that when I was in college, I used to blow up light bulbs, uh, you know, make plasma in grapes, but I never thought I'll to put a Slim Jim in. the link. It's really kind of cool. You can actually see uh, circulating currents in, say, a slice of uh, a salami where the center is cooler than the edges. All right. You know what you should do? You're going to have fun with this. If you want to, like, do, like, super plasma stuff with weird, you ever tried partially evacuating the inside of a microwave? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, you're, you're getting a light bulb if you're clever. It's crazy. I, I, there's a, you, the people used to do a, a microwave dehydration because the theory was by increasing the evaporation rate, uh, you could have uh, fruits keep their shape basically as they're evaporating in a microwave under partial evacuation. So mm-hmm. I tried it a bunch of times, and I would always get huge plasma balls all over the inside of the microwave. <laughs> I, I also did some work microwaving inside uh, through uh, ice, ice, which is very cool. Yeah, well, it's ice like... Ice is microwave transparent, so you can microwave inside an ice cube, which is kind of cool. Right, it is cool. So, you know, Nicholas Curti, the physicist, that was his, like, his killer app was his baked up, yeah. microwave baked Alaska. All right, let's get back to grilling, uh, though. Florida. They call it baked Florida. Baked Florida? Oh, nice. All right, so let's talk about... Uh, let me see, I'm trying to look at the myths that I want to get to. Oh, my, let's go back to myoglobin for a minute. You know, one of the, uh, the things that people get, and you have it in two separate places in the book is uh, one is uh, I forget the first one but the second one is, is color is not an indication of 
of the, right. of Dunnis. And you know, and your specific one was chicken. The problem is, is people just won't eat things that are that color. How do we? Well, they won't eat chicken. We're getting better at eating pink pork. The government gave us the okay. They lowered the forbidden temperature from 165 to 145. And if uh, you want to cook pork down to 140 or 135, you're in for a real treat. You're getting a steak-like experience of tenderness and juiciness that you've never had in pork before. And a few restaurants are doing that. And you're dealing with a whole muscle meat, just like you are with a steak. You're going to be pretty safe. Um, but uh, chicken, we just have a mental block. My wife is a FDA food safety scientist. Um, she's pretty smart, pretty high-ranking uh, government uh, expert. And I can bring in chicken from the grill that I've tempt and I know is safe, 165, 170. And we cut into it, and the juices run pink. And she'll look at it. She'll look at that bloody spot along the side of the thigh, and she'll get up and put it in the microwave. <laughs> now, now, you know, I can't fix, I can't fix the color uh, near the bone because you have this uh, huge source of myoglobin sitting there in the marrow. But the surface, and a lot of people reject it on the surface, is if you put it in an acidic marinade, the acid will reduce the temperature that myoglobin changes color. Right. So one of the tricks is to use in, a, in buttermilk, uh, for example, and other things will dramatically help near the surface. So for boneless meat, for people who are queasy about this, I recommend something that's acidic to help make it less pink. The key here is, and Greg, you can elaborate, um, is that myoglobin changes color when it heats up. Um, so it starts out pink, and that's the pink juices. So when you cook a steak, the juices run pink because you're only cooking it to 130, 135. And, and the meat stays pink. But when you cook the meat to 140, 150, it starts getting gray or brown. The myoglobin changes color. Same thing in chicken. Now we're cooking chicken up to 160, 165. But something about the acidity of the meat prevents the myoglobin from changing colors like it used to. You know, nowadays we grow chickens from zero, from egg, to three and a half pounds in seven weeks. It goes from egg to store shelf in seven weeks. Uh, it used to be these birds would wander around and it would take months for them to grow. The bones would calcify much more effectively. Now the chicken bones have very thin calcium uh, on them, and so you can see the marrow through the bone. It the, 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 the blood in the, or myoglobin in the marrow will leak out, and you can, in the picture, there's a picture in the book of really purple bone juice, and the juices will stay pink. It, they, they don't get hot enough. And at, this is a good point for Greg to point out um, how uh, the smoke ring works, because Greg did definitive research on this. David, got two well, minutes. Oh, I got two minutes. Well, so, and I got to get I mean, some, checking, so, yeah, go, go, go. No, no, I mean, chicken can be pink for two reasons. One is because the myoglobin didn't denature and it didn't turn brown. But the other reason is nitric oxide and carbon monoxide from a smoker gets in there and fixes the myoglobin, just like you fix a photograph. And, um, and so that can be another reason why smoked meats are pink. And below the Mason-Dixon line, people look at that and say, oh, good, you smoked it. And above the Mason-Dixon line, they return it, which drives the restaurant crazy. Um, in both cases, the acidity will help you uh, open a window where you can serve meat, which isn't pink, but is uh, safe to eat. Another interesting thing about myoglobin that you know I've read in the research but also been borne out by my experience is it's not a simple temperature. It's not a light switch. It's also rate dependent. So if you're doing low and slow, you're going to have a different kind of uh, interaction between finished and, temperature and, and also, myoglobin. as you know, you can have a pink stew meat. Um, and, uh, again, that's a low and slow cook. 
It's also often in a situation where the uh, oxygen can't get out, so the oxygen continues to refresh and keep the myoglobin pink. And so it depends upon the thickness of the meat, how quickly you're doing the cooking, and a variety of other, other factors. Um, the myoglobin breaks down for more than one reason, and uh, some of those enzymes and so on, if you cook low and slow, they're more fragile than the myoglobin. So the thing that attacks the myoglobin dies away before it has a chance to work on the myoglobin. Um, and so it, it, it is very much a rate-dependent thing. It's very much dependent upon whether the oxygen can get out or not, which is, in, for example, in marrow, it's a little bit like a balloon. The oxygen doesn't leave as easily. The, meat, the marrow tends to stay pink longer. Uh, right. For that reason, so it's it's a very complicated. I mean, I like it because those are knobs you can turn right. to adjust the final result. But it is very complicated. So uh, they're going to kick us off the air here. But so before we, do, I'm going to say a couple things on the way out. By the way, June, who wrote in about the upside down cake, please tell me exactly the problem you're having so I can solve it because I can't tell whether you're talking about the fruit is sticking to your pan or whether the texture of the cake is what's wrong. So write in, tell me. I'll get to the rest of the questions later. Professor, plug your website, please. It's uh, GenuineIdeas.com, and there's a button that says Food, and all the articles are there under the Food button. And, and if you have not already gone there from this show, you must go there right now. Don't eat lunch first. Go there, <laughs> go there right now. And Meathead, your website? Uh, AmazingRibs.com, and the book? Is Meathead by Meathead Goldwyn uh, and uh, Professor Greg Blonder. You should go out, and you should purchase that instantaneously. Uh, on the way out, let me just say two things. One bone I have to pick with you. I don't leave the fat cap on because of protecting the meat. It's because the crunchy fat is delicious. Uh, it's delicious. And you're not going to give me a chance to rebut. I will. In one, you have the 20 seconds. I'll give you the other one, too. I have a bone to pick with both of you guys on the on the 225 versus three, uh, whatever, the 325 because – I think it's accurate. However, higher temperatures than 325, I think, will reverse their trend on the 325 because you're dealing with evaporative cooling a lot on the 225, yes. keeping the meat temperature down. But if you ever guys ever come on again, we'll have that argument. I didn't even say what my argument is to people, so I it's not a real say, I didn't even hear that argument. Did it, no, I mean, like, well, well, we can get into it. I think there's a bunch of things in the book. You should see – should, everyone should read the book. Fair. And then we'll <laughs> read the book. We'll have them call in again. We'll talk about 225 versus 325, which I think is accurate as it's in the book. It's accurate. My only gripe is that if you were to go much higher, I think that the trend would not stay the same way. It wouldn't. It's not linear. I think you picked two special temperatures. Well, I picked them, not Greg, and uh, yeah. and I picked them because I like the uh, 325 renders fat a little better in chicken. Right. All right. So listen, go see their stuff. Uh, thanks so much, uh, folks, uh, guys, for being on uh, Cooking Issues. Dax, also, you want to say goodbye? Bye. Nastasia, you said nothing. Say something. Hi. Cooking issues. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.